Hey everyone, this is Leela Sinha. Welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast version two. This is where we talk about business, leadership, ethics, community, and the way it all fits together. I'm glad you're here. Hi everyone. This episode definitely requires a little setup. I originally recorded it in the car while I was thinking about this stuff, knowing that I was going to have to re-record it so that it wouldn't be full of you know, road noise and hissing and so on and so forth. So what I was thinking about when I started to, when I started to compose this was about prison abolition and the steps that we're going to have to take in order to achieve prison abolition. I'm a prison abolitionist. I do not think prisons should exist. I think that we need to come up with other options for our culture. However, I am aware that most people are not there, that most people are not able or willing to consider prison abolition. And I swear this is connected to business. you got to stick with me for the whole thing, though. So when I think about prison abolition, the first thing that I think is that we need to move away from this idea that justice is best served um, by punishment, that, that punitive justice is the model that we want, that we're looking for ways to create punishment as a deterrent to um, to behaving in ways that are hard on society. I don't believe that punishment is a particularly good way to change people's behavior. Um, and there's a good bit of research that shows that that's, generally speaking, true. So taking that as a baseline, if we are going to move toward prison abolition, I think we need to, we need to scaffold people into it. Um, pedagogical theory includes these, this idea that one of the ways you get people to learn something is by getting them to learn a little bit and then a little more and a little more, and they can kind of move up the scaffolding as they go, um, you know, using previous things that they've learned to, to adjust their position so that then they can learn or reach the next thing up on the scaffolding. So I started thinking about that with regard to prison abolition, and I thought, you know, the first thing we need to do is get people to this point of, of non-punitive justice model. But also, we need to, we, we need to have a, an intermediate goal, an intermediate step. Um, I don't think we're going to get society all the way to prison abolition from zero. So how do we do that? And, you know, this is and isn't a metaphor. Whenever you're working with people, especially expansives, but also... Um, large groups of people, it can be really helpful to think about where do I want them to get ultimately and how how do I need to scaffold them into it? How do I need to take little steps to get them there? One of the things with with prison abolition is like, what would it be if we were just kind to people who are convicted in the justice system we have, the so-called justice system? Um, what would happen if we just had a system that was kind to people through every step? And that right there often just completely blows people's minds. So um, so where my brain goes is the intermediate step we need, not the final step, but the intermediate step we need is prisons that are kind. And here I'm going to start reading from the text that I generated in the car. So in order to make our prisons kind, we have to move away from punitive justice. But we also have to move toward something. And in this case, we have to move toward institutional kindness. Right now, we use institutions, not just prisons, but all institutions as an excuse. And 
we use institutions as a, a front. We hide behind them. We use them as, a, as an excuse to be less kind. That's the policy. That's the rule. That's the way it has to be. It's not me. I can't change it. That's above my pay grade, whatever it is. Right? Institutions protect us from having to directly face the consequences um, and the impact of our unkindness. They create a, a shelter for people who are enacting that unkindness. So we use institutions, among other things, they have their uses, but we use institutions as an excuse when we're trying to justify something that's probably not really justifiable, or at least that's that's conflictedly justifiable. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's it's what the institution wants but not justifiable in terms of an individual. And sometimes the institution actually exists to protect a collective of individuals. Sometimes the collective good does need to come before the individual good and the institution serves as a mechanism for enacting that. And those moments are, we're using, and in those moments we're using the institution as a way of understanding the need for something that's not necessarily ideal for an individual like us, but is better for the institution. And that, that sometimes makes sense. So there are exceptions, but also we have an expectation, a cultural expectation of institutional cruelty. That is our baseline expectation. We do not expect institutions to be kind. We do not demand that institutions are kind. And especially our institutions of justice and our institutions of policing and things like that have gone from, you know, at least some people used to have an expectation of kindness to nobody really has an expectation of kindness. And that's not to say that when some people had the expectation of kindness, everyone was safe. That's not true. But it's gotten worse, is what I'm saying. It started bad. It started really bad. And it's gotten worse. I recently saw a very interesting meme of six images of Lego policemen in the United States over time. And you can see the militarization of the police in the way that Lego figures are kind of summarizing policingness, right? Anytime you have something like a cartoon or an action figure, it has to summarize the basic ideas or feelings or concepts of that thing it's trying to portray because you can't get all the actual details in there. So what two or three or four things does the company Lego pick for an American policeman? And those two or three or four things have gone from being like a badge and a sash to identify this person as a policeman, to a shield and a plastic face shield and guns and gray rather than blue. It's becoming visibly more militarized. It's really clear that even over the last 50 years, our expectations of that particular institution's kindness have gone down, and they weren't at all okay to begin with, but it has gotten worse. And police are an extreme example, but also look at the way that companies used to be expected to behave in an honorable or semi-honorable fashion, and people used to be shocked and dismayed when it turned out a company was deceiving the public. And now we just kind of take it for granted that companies are going to be deceptive and difficult and dishonorable and hard to work with and obstreperous, and that, that the interests of the customers are not anywhere on the map, really. So we need to move our entire society toward an expectation of institutional kindness, not only in prisons, but outside of prisons. Because if people are treated like crap by the institutions that they're in direct and daily contact with, and they're not in prison, and they're not in direct and daily contact with the police, then they're going to take that as the upper standard of behavior. Because we do have this societal um, belief 
that people who have not committed crimes are somehow superior to people who have, which I also think we need to really examine and rethink. Um, But even if we take that as the base assumption, knowing that we're not able to change everything about the way people think at once, if we take that behavior of our non-policing, non-justice-oriented institutions as that upper standard of behavior of kindness in the institution, and that's terrible, then most people aren't going to be able to conceive of or accept the idea of a prison that as an institution has better standards and treats the people inside the prison system better than they're, for example, being treated by their workplace or by their school. And so we have to move back to an expectation of institutional kindness across the board. And when I say expectation, not only do we hope that it happens, but we demand that it happens. We hold that as the standard at which we are expecting all of these institutions to operate, all of them, all of the ones around us, the hotels, the businesses, the tech companies that hold our data, all of that, instead of just accepting and assuming that they're going to treat us like crap, we're going to assume that they should be and will be treating us well and assume in that kind of entitled way that calls in that behavior. And when they don't, and I don't mean, by the way, that we are going to be naive about our interactions, (laughs) but when they don't, when they don't meet our standard, we're going to use whatever power, whatever influence we have, we're going to take that power and influence in those arenas and we are going to fix it. We are going to put pressure on those institutions. We are going to demand change. We're going to insist that they do it differently. We're going to require that they do it differently. We're going to favor institutions that do it the way that they should do it, which is with kindness, which is with humanity as a fundamental element of how things are done. We're going to look skeptically at anything that tries to strip humanity out of a person. And we're going to require instead that our institutions are created and reformed and transformed into things that support humans. Support humans. The institutions exist for us, not the other way around. We do this so that the standard of behavior across the board improves. Not just in some institutions, but in all institutions. And as that standard improves, that will create the mental space to improve the institutional standard around justice and imprisonment. Like I said, I am a prison abolitionist. I do not think we should have prisons at all. I want to be very clear. But moving society is sometimes a staged process. Until we can move people to a place where they understand that justice is not best served by punishment, and that includes ourselves, because so many of us, when we get hurt, we get angry, and then we want to lash out. And that lashing out is, in a way, a desire to enact punishment on the person who has hurt us, or on the institution that has hurt us. So until we can move people, including ourselves, to a place where we understand that justice is not best served by punishment, that the goal isn't to inflict pain or misery or suffering, which is torture, that the goal is to protect society, like that's the only reason we can't even, I'm not even going to say that that justifies prisons because it doesn't, but there are times and places and situations where we do need to protect society somehow from people who have demonstrated that they cannot safely move through society in the usual way. But in most cases, nothing even remotely like prison is necessary. Often it's just restrictions, like you did a bad thing in this arena, okay, well, now you can't 
have as much freedom in that arena in your life. You hurt somebody in this way, okay, we got to figure out a way that you can make it right to the best of your ability, to the best of our cultural societal ability, this has to be made whole. We also have to consider why you might have been doing those things in the first place and what society did to cause the circumstances that caused you to do that. But prison is, prison is, is horrible. And while we're on the subject, we need to completely eliminate the way that felonies and certain other crimes dog people for the rest of their lives. Like just on principle, there are some situations where we have to be attentive um, to the high incidence of recidivism, but, but we also need to recognize that people are human after a conviction as well as before it. And we have to recognize how flawed the system we use to create those convictions is. Like, the whole system is a disaster. I just want to be clear about that. But when people do need to be isolated from society, some part of a society, if that's a thing that's necessary, the only way to even begin to think about justifying that kind of isolation is to say that the isolation itself is sufficient restriction. It does the thing, just the isolation. These are not institutions where we are supposed to be inflicting misery, but we are. For example, did you know that not everyone in prison gets a pillow? Did you know that people in prison don't get a choice of long or short pants, even though the climate and the spaces that they occupy can vary wildly and they might not have control over it? Did you know that they don't turn off the lights at night? Have you seen the studies about what proper lack of proper sleep does to your health, your mental health, your well-being, your ability to think, your ability to function, the amount of resilience you have? It becomes really obvious really fast that these institutions paid for by our tax dollars are torturing people. No amount of misbehavior justifies torture. None. None. Zero. There is no action that a person can take that justifies inflicting torture on them. And yet we have institutions established across the country designed and run to torture the people inside them. If you want to teach people how to be kind and good in the world, that is not how you do it. That is not how you do it. So when we think about this, when we think about this, as business owners, as power holders in our society. What do we do about prison abolition? What do we do about torture that we're paying for, that we're funding, that we're supporting? What do we as business owners do about the massive injustice in our society today and the disproportionate impact that our so-called justice system has on all kinds of people? So there are a lot of things we can do. We can support ban-the-box legislation. We can stop asking people if they have you know, felony convictions or whatever. We can um, restrict our use of background checks to situations where they're actually necessary. We can stop asking people for their salary histories. There's, there are all kinds of things we can do. But I think this thing that we can do is fairly unique to us. 
The first thing we can do is change the institutions that we control to develop a habit and culture of institutional kindness, and that will lead to a lot of the other things I just mentioned. Because when we develop a culture, a culture of institutional kindness, and we put that out there as the norm, and then we're public about it, and then we talk about that institutional culture of kindness as we enact it, not just lip service, And then we talk about how we enact it. How do we do it? Not just when we're talking about our internal culture. Oh, we're very nice to each other. I once worked in a a commercial kitchen that somebody um, new to the kitchen called a please and thank you kitchen because that was apparently really unusual. I don't have a lot of experience in commercial kitchen spaces, but apparently saying please and thank you to each other is weird. So when we talk about how we enact institutional kindness, not just internally like that, but also when we're talking about our hiring and our firing, when we're talking about what happens when we have to have a layoff, what's our layoff plan? How does that look under institutional kindness as a model? What are we going to to have? How are we going to do profits? How are we doing salaries? Like all these places where we can implement justice and kindness as part of our institutional culture. What about when somebody needs an extra day off? What about when we decide that unlimited PTO is a thing? How does that change things? And then it turns out that somebody's actually taking unfair advantage of it and isn't getting their work done. How do we manage that? You know, what else are we doing? Every time we talk about how we do it, we talk about how we do it in a kind, ethical, justice-filled way. And I mean real justice, not the justice that's going on in our present system. Every time we talk about it out loud, internally, externally, with our peers, with our communities, we contribute to a culture of institutional kindness. Every time we do it with our customers or clients, we contribute to a culture of institutional kindness. We can just do that little thing, you know, empower your customer service reps to just do that little extra thing, just, you know, with their own authority. Don't make them run through 16 levels of managers to refund somebody 50 cents. Just let them give somebody, like, let them give the refund of a dollar. It's not that much. It makes people feel really good. And it's kind. And when we contribute to a culture of institutional kindness, then what comes next is an expectation of institutional kindness. If enough businesses establish institutional kindness as their baseline ethos, then suddenly people expect it from each other, from other companies, from everyone. Suddenly people won't go work for companies that aren't doing that. Suddenly people won't work under crappy conditions. They won't work under terrible conditions because they have choices. And the choices that they have, you're creating an alternative as a business owner. You are creating alternatives to shitty working conditions. And when we create alternatives, then we give people choices. And when we give people choices, they realize that more is possible. They become less constricted. They become more creative. They become more interested in what else could happen. Something different could happen. And when they realize that something different and more and better is possible, you know what happens next? They change. They become more generous. They become more community-oriented. They become more interconnected. They recognize that it feels different to be treated well because they're having this experience of being treated well. There are all these studies that show that people's politics change when they're treated well. People's politics change. They become more community-oriented. They become more interested in, in shared support, in mutual aid. They become less scared. There's a direct causal relationship between, less, between being less scared, less cramped, and having 
a better sense of community support and interconnection, interdependence about how we are all connected. We as business owners can change that. We can create it by starting in our own companies. We can make the world different by how we do things in our own organizations. One of the things that we can do is be really radically inclusive of everybody. And when you start to think like that, then your kindness just levels up massively, your enacted kindness. It would be great if everybody had like this deep-seated sense of rightness and wrongness and kindness and could get there. But if we can't get there right away, that's okay. Just act like it. Just pretend. One of my colleagues, C.B. Beale, developed and teaches a model called preemptive radical inclusion, which is about preemptively, proactively doing things to make a space inclusive for everyone. Their website is um, justiceandpeaceconsulting.com, and I will put the link in the show notes. It's a great model, and it changes how you think. It changes how you act. The thing that I teach is how to understand specifically intensives and expansives in your workplace and how to create a workplace that's particularly suited to those gifts and those talents and supporting the needs of both intensives and expansives. At the same time, in the right roles, dramatic reduction of friction, it, it changes things. It changes the amount of stress people are under. It changes the amount of constriction people feel. It changes whether people feel, as Oprah is so fond of saying, seen and heard and understood. Seen and heard and understood. Imagine if we felt that way in our workplaces. Imagine if we could make people feel that way in their workplaces. Imagine if people could feel that way in prison. Seen, heard, understood, cared for, supported. Imagine. The part I haven't said out loud yet is that the institutions where we spend our lives are not that different from each other, that school and work and every other institution needs to be kind. There's not as much difference as there should be between an institution that's designed to be punitive and one that is ostensibly not. None of our lives should be designed to be punitive. No matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we're doing, it shouldn't be punitive. That's not how this works. Increasing the amount of misery in the world does not serve us. I'm going to try and get some business owner on, owners on here who are actively doing this in a variety of ways. We're actively engaged in wealth building or actively engaged in supporting the whole person as a part of employment. We're actively giving better than minimum benefits because that's one of the ways that they can take care of their employees. I can think of three businesses offhand that I absolutely want to get in here and we'll see if I can keep it down to an hour when I do. <laughs> But meanwhile, what can you do? Institutional kindness. Create a culture of institutional kindness. Do it right now. Create and maintain and develop. Develop and create and maintain a culture of institutional kindness. How can you do that? What's the first step? Kindness. I'll see you next time.
This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.